we are not afforded the luxury of being average. What a difference. I'm the one that's trying to hold this family together. Come on! You pushed him! What a difference. Tyler, I'm sorry. Tyler, stop! So today is the day we talk about A24 wonder kid, Trey Edward Schultz, who burst onto the scene in 2015 with his micro-budget masterpiece, Cresha, followed that up with the pre-pandemic shelter-at-home thriller, It Comes at Night, and his latest offering, Waves, which in my opinion, a five-star film. Slow down, Duncan. Slow down. Five stars? It's good, but that's a bold, bold projection there. Ooh, let the debate begin. We doing this again? (laughs) Yeah, we're talking to each other. How are things over in San Francisco land? I have gone full California. When I'm not working on this podcast on my MacBook or studying Spanish on my app, uh, Ryan, me encanta hablar las películas contigo. I am really excited for our all Spanish podcast in 20 years time when you have learned Spanish and I just don't say anything because I don't know anything. And to keep it ultra California, I've been sunbathing while reading Buddhism for Dummies. Embrace who you are, Ryan. Recreating a little uh, serious man, causing uh, Jewish men on their roofs to, uh, you know, have life crises. I'm not, I don't think I'm inspiring lust in anyone, but there are some hummingbirds who have been uh, having some fast heartbeats as they dance around me. Look out, looking like a flower, looking for some nectar. Watch me bloom. <laughs> How about you? Kitty and I are currently hanging out in New Mexico. We are eyeballing a drive-in theater, Princess Bride, this Sunday night, thinking we might, you know, take what we can get these days. Take what you can get? That was an essential part of growing up. We watched that. Whoa, not a dig on Princess Bride. I'm talking about movie theater experiences. Calm down. Easy, easy. (laughs) Down, down boy. (laughs) Um, but yeah, we've been hanging out. I've been watching, you know, a little bit of uh, random movies. Uh, when Katie and I were in Taos this weekend, we watched Captain Phillips on cable television in the motel, just like, you know, the 90s. And so that was fun. I haven't seen that in a while. Uh, and mostly just hanging out. Nothing crazy. Speaking of my super smooth segues... I just realized the last film I saw in a theater was The Rhythm Section with mm. Blake Lively and Sterling K. Brown, who is one of our featured players in Waves. With theaters getting ready to reopen here in New Mexico in about three weeks' time, which I'm promises, promises. <laughs> I know. I know. I had me thinking about the last movie I saw in theaters was Kitty Green's The Assistant with uh, Julie Gardner in the title role. And yeah, that was the last thing I saw. I remember it was very cold. I was with my friend, Justin. He was all hooded up. The AC was blasting and the uncomfortable cringe and really sad story was also assaulting us, but really good movie and a good memory. 
ready to <laughs> ready to see Tenet. <laughs> One day we'll get there. Today is Trey Edward Schultz Day. I first heard about him from you when I suggested mm-hmm. we see It Comes at Night, which all I actually knew about it was good poster, A24, Joel Edgerton, good enough for me. And then you name dropped Cresha. How'd you first hear about Cresha? Somebody was referring to it in anticipation of It Comes at Night coming out in a couple months. And I think it was on Netflix or something. So I, I looked it up again on Metacritic. Calm down, Duncan. And it had good reviews. And I thought, all right, I'll give it a shot. And when I watched it, I was pretty blown away. And so then my brother and I were pretty excited about uh, going to see It Comes at Night in theaters. And we managed to do that. I think his films are all solid, really interesting, excited for what's coming up next. By the time he was 31, he had already done three feature films and three shorts. He's touched by greatness, Ryan. He interned on The Tree of Life and on a few different Terrence Malick films. Who do you have to torture for that information? The keyboard at Wikipedia. (laughs) (laughs) Only the highest journalism standards for me. I mean, at this point, (laughs) it might be pretty high. I didn't know he interned on Tree of Life. So he's been to our pilgrimage location. He's been to the, the house in Smithville. So he's worked on three films, but you can already see a signature style forming. He loves Families in Peril. He loves Eminent Dread. He, I think he's a map. Say I don't it. Say it. You've already started. Just say it. Master Craftsmanship truly uses every element of cinema. To Hot make take. Cinematic. And of course, it's not a Trey film without arm wrestling. Or is it? Was, was there arm wrestling and it comes at night? I'm not sure, but there might as well have been. <laughs> might as well. Greatest arm wrestling director since Over the Top with Stallone. <laughs> That'd be great if his next project was Stallone. <laughs> Just like Remake him and Terry, him and Terry the- Crews. <laughs> <laughs> Remake Over the Top. Make it happen. All right, let's, uh, let's start with Kresha. This is a place of healing. Right here, right here it is, Kresha. This is it. You can say anything, anytime, anywhere. You let me know. When it's all said and done, I'm married to your goddamn sister in there, and I'm family. Thank you. And I appreciate the offer. And as soon as I have anything really incredibly revealing that I want to say, I will definitely come right to you and say it, dude. Well, I'll tell you what. You can write it down, and I'll read it later. Okay. Shut up! So that was a clip from Krisha, not Krishna. Not Krisha. It took me a lot of times to get this word right. Krisha. There you go. Krisha, a free-spirited and troubled soul in her mid-60s, tries to reconnect with her estranged family at a Thanksgiving after having spent many, many years apart from them as she struggles with her personal demons. Now, this may sound like a cliche indie film setup, but Trey's approach to this material rises above my quick take, masterclass in micro-budget filmmaking. Ryan, what are, your, what are some of your immediate reactions to the film? Well, my first reaction is you're throwing the word master around a lot. But I don't disagree with Krisha. Uh, I was blown away with Krisha as well. And when I watched it, I loved it. 
I thought it was really well done. I thought it was original and inventive where it could have been trite and safe, just trying to get someone to notice. But I feel like Trey showed his skill and his style from the get-go. So yeah, I loved Crescia. It's a really good movie and uh, we'll get into the reasons why. As I'm saying, this is how micro-budget filmmaking should be done. So this was shot in nine days with a $30,000 budget, one location, his parents' home, and his family as the cast, except for two people. So number one, write about what you know. Uh, This is based on (laughs) semi-auto... Ryan, can you say that word for me, please? Semi-autobiographical. Ryan, you are better at talking pretty words than me. So yeah, this is based on uh, his father and a cousin's struggles. uh, Wrote it into the script. He certainly has a motivated crew because he is pretty much all of the crew as writer, director, editor, actor, and producer. Uh, Did bring in Drew Daniels as a director of photography. Did a great job. So as they're saying, family members are pretty much playing themselves. Cresha Fairchild is playing Cresha. Uh, she had about a dozen acting credits and some voiceover work before this. Trey plays himself as Trey. And then Ryan's favorite discovery, Bill Wise as Doyle. Oh, Doyle. He's, he's just, he's just, you know, even if you don't like him or disagree with the way he's saying, you're just happy he's alive. You're happy he's out there somewhere just spouting off. Bill Wise as Doyle was one of the two uh, people he cast for the film. Yeah, Cresha was first a short film. He saw that that it, that it worked, bumped it up to this feature length. It's cinematic. We'll talk about that more in the craft. It's not just mumblecore. The camera is telling the story. The soundtrack is telling the story. They're telling the damn story, not just mumbling along. Uh, and most importantly, I don't know why I forgot to do this with all of my films, But you have to win awards at Sundance, New York Film Critics, L.A. Film Critics, Independent Spirit Awards, and then get picked up by uh, A24. I think I think those are some important keys to success, which somehow (laughs) I forgot. Yeah. So, Ryan, you said the the craft of the film. That's what popped out at you early on. The strength of the visuals. uh, He uses circles a lot. The camera often just slowly pans around in circles. We're catching little spinning and blurred transitions often to kind of show the audience just where we're supposed to be at in terms of the way things are going. You know, when it's spinning or blurred, you're, you're discombobulated. You're really not sure what's going on. And I think that often when you're at a family function and there are people there who have some drama going in their lives. You never really know what's going to come next. I think he just really sets the tone with his craft there. And finally, I just really enjoyed the little vignettes of different family members throughout the day. Um, You don't really get to know everyone and you don't get to know what's going on in their lives, but you get these little just pictures of drama or interactions or conversations that I think fleshes out who they are and who their family is, letting your imagination do the work and really grounds you into what's going on as it goes forward. Yeah, that camera is spinning, spinning out of control. So I was saying there's all those side stories going on. The film is certainly cut for emotion, not for continuity. You're really getting the feeling of being there, how everything feels. It's not plot heavy, but it is. There's some solid themes going on there. Using horror to highlight the dark or broken sides of our human nature is really well done. I love, I mean, Duncan, I'll lay my cards on the table. That scene of her 
taking the giblets out of the turkey. It's just exactly what you want it to be. The the facial expression. Uh, I can't remember who's sitting across from the sink, and he's staring at her with just this like a gape face, and it's gross. It's visceral, and I just think it's a perfect setting for the unease, the horror, and just the messiness that's to come. I love that scene. It's hands down my favorite for the film. Spilling the turkey's guts before she spills her guts. And not literally. There's there's tension throughout. This is like psychological character uh, thriller in a small sense. Not a horror film, but you are horrified of how people can treat each other. I think that's one of the strengths is it's not a horror film, but it uses tension in the camera. I think, I think he uses a lot of those elements to tell a story that's more drama than horror, but it keeps yeah. you on edge. It's cinema. It's doing what it should do. So we've been gushing. I'm giving this four out of five. I really liked it. My favorite Schultz, I think four and a half is what I give this one. And I think that he does a really good job making the audience wait for it while not being happy about what's going on. <laughs> yeah, so we both recommend this film. If our opinion is not strong enough for you, say if you're really interested in micro-budget films, I'm going to give some of my top micro-budget choices at the end. If you like family drama done in a unique way, and I think Waves is pretty much the spiritual sequel to this film. We'll talk more about that. But next up, we have It Comes at Night. Put your mask on. Nobody's sick here. Can't trust anyone but family. You don't get it. How old are you, Travis? If they're sick, then I am too. In It Comes at Night, a family creates a new life for themselves in an isolated cabin in the woods as an unseen virus, monster, plague, beyond their front door threatens humanity and themselves. It, it threatens humanity, Duncan. Let's talk about the family is Joel Edgerton, Carmen Ajogo, and Kelvin Harris Jr. That's family one. And then we have family two with Chris Abbott as Will and Riley Keough as Kim. And Ryan, we said, what is it? Uh, the first time we talked about the film, I think we discovered it is me. I am the monster. I was willing to exterminate with extreme prejudice to protect my <laughs> fictional family. That is true. When we first talked about this movie, you were very pro-murder. You were pro-Joel Edgerton. And I I tried to throw some questions at you to try to, you know, just put some, just some uncertainty in that worldview. But murder continued to propel you down its dangerous path. So I, I do believe I, you might be what comes at night, Duncan. It's official. I wasn't passionate about this. I just, it just needed to be done. Wow. You know, this sounds like another cliche setup but it is not like there there isn't the film doesn't start off with you know news clips of the world falling apart police cars burning <laughs> now as i'm saying all of this realizing that the film is about a pandemic and we're currently still in it Ugh. ron i feel like i've just dug myself into a grave are you gonna shoot me in the back and set me on fire or can you help me out of here unlike you i'm not i'm not pro pro murder to protect my family at any cost. Yeah, so what we're looking at here is it is a it's kind of a 
it's kind of a cliche. You're looking at the, you're looking at a lot of end of the world or apocalyptic scenarios. You're looking at a family trying to survive. They're isolated. We've seen these before. Let's go straight to Trey and hear what he has to say about it. Thinking on it in hindsight, with Cretia, it was a family reunion story. It has been done to death. It's the most boring setup you can do. But within that, I think we created something unique. I hope it comes at night is the same way. A contained post-apocalyptic thing. It's been done a lot, but it comes from such a personal place. And the two just come together. And I just had faith that this would be different. We started writing this film about two months after his own father died. And this was just him working through his demons. It's interesting you bring that up because I didn't know that. Again, Duncan, your sleuthing, your sleuthing serves you well. But just how Trey talking about it as a way to grieve his father, that's really interesting because death is, while it might be ubiquitous or everywhere, like in, in the world around them, it's definitely, there's definitely gravity to it. People feel it. And there's a lot of grieving in this movie. The final words that Trey said to his father are some of the first words in this script, which is like, it's okay to stop fighting. You can let go. To paraphrase. Oh, yeah. Now we're, now we're getting in the deep end. <laughs> so that's Trey's experience. What was your general reaction to the film? Duncan, before we get into that, I was interested. Do you, believe, you think this is horror? No, I think... So here, the critics were unanimous and the audience were both in alignment. They both loved Cretia. Here, critics gave it 87%. Audiences gave it 44%. Kelly Riker on our hands. <laughs> He's at the side of a master. <laughs> no, I think I think the audience score is so low. I watched the trailer after I watched the film. Every little piece of gore that happens in the film, you're you're seeing it in the trailer. It feels like a zombie apocalypse trailer, just on a smaller scale. There's the tension building the entire time. This certainly isn't for true horror fans. I wouldn't even say it's in that same A24 vein of horror as The Witch or hereditary this is more i mean this film is is about fear <laughs> yeah yeah i think when you look at horror often there's a monster there's something going on that causes people to react and this is more a delve into humanity in maybe horrifying circumstances but there doesn't seem to be i definitely wouldn't recommend this to Horror fans who are looking for a more traditional horror experience, such as, yeah, the Babadook, the witch, it follows even these things. Even if you look at Hereditary or, or Midsummer, there's some sense of evil or horrific out there outside of people. And while they'll mine human nature from that, it's still out there. And this is more kind of self-contained. We're just all up in everybody's head. The home was supposed to look like a maze. Travis's mind, he's just stuck in there, doesn't know how to get out. And The Shining was a big influence on this film. We have the maze at the end there, and then there's no solid geography of the hotel itself. So yeah, the, the horror lies within your own mind, fearing what is out there, when it will get you. Because at some point, it's going to get you. Ryan, have you found out how to transcend above morality yet? No, but I'll let you know how to get on that. I mean, you're the Buddhist here. <laughs> Chapter four, I think I have a deep understanding of transcending the cycle of life and death. Well, you let us know when you get there. Uh, yeah, there's a similar visual style here for Trey. I noted there's a rolling down the hallway with all the family pictures of Travis with uh, his mom and dad. 
and as they're going down, you're seeing Travis younger, you're seeing happier times. There's similar moment in Cresha. Some slower circles. I think one thing I missed in this one, though, was the what I mentioned with Cresha, the vignette style, the little moments kind of giving us texture to people and not necessarily explaining everything, but showing us that there's stories that we don't know, but make them who they are. That was gone. And there was more of a straightforward approach here. I think one of the things I most appreciated that was new was his use of light, what you referenced in the house. Often there's just a light traveling through the house. The corners are dark. You kind of lean against your chair, kind of afraid what the light might show. And then, uh, and then the character keeps moving. So I, I think there was similarities here, but kind of a little more straightforward, a little more commercial approach here for me. So Trey went from working with his family and very small film crew to this being, you know, a more moderate film. I think he got a great performance out of the actors. The craft is strong there. It just, it's hard to say it about a film that's written to grieve his father, but it did. It didn't feel like there was as much heart or it didn't connect is the word I would say. It just didn't connect. So if it comes at night and fear is the disease, we understand that, but I don't necessarily felt like we understood what was at stake with them beyond high emotional situations. And again, I think because that texture was missing. I'm right down the middle. I give it two and a half. I liked it. No, I kind of liked it too. I think I give it like three and a half out of five. I think it has a really compelling, what I like most about it is the idea behind it, that if we all have fear within us and it comes at night, I think is a reference to how fear often shows itself at night. And there's a line, if they're sick, then I'm sick too. And I think that just shows how fear is in all of us. And you can't really, I don't know, uh, murder everyone like Joel Edgerton would like to just because they have fear in them. Duncan. I say this is for fans of it follows. Uh, It reminded me a lot of take shelter by Jeff Nichols that deals a lot with fear. Yeah. Trey also worked on Jeff Nichols midnight special was also an intern on that film. He's, he's getting around. He's interning everywhere. I said it before. I'll say it again. The world don't give a shit about you or me. We are not afforded the luxury of being average. Got to work 10 times as hard just to get anywhere. It's... I don't push you because I want to. I push you because I have to. Do you hear what I'm saying, son? Do you hear what I'm saying? Mm. Mm. So now we're on to Waves, Trey's most recent film coming out in 2019. Um, How can you summarize this film in one word? Life? I mean, it's got everything. We have love. We have loss. We have courage to move forward. Fear holding you back, creating a family, losing a family, caring for others, being hurt by others. It's beautiful. It's messy. I think this is maybe one of the best films of 2019. I think it got buried and no, and barely anybody saw this thing. I think it was like 5 million in box office worldwide. Yeah, you're feeling pretty strongly about this one, Dunks. It got you. It got you deep. Okay. So the, uh, I've been in one car accident that that put me in the hospital. I wouldn't say I'm scared of cars. I was a professional bus driver for one summer as a tour guide. But 
something about teenagers driving cars horrifies me. There is a lot of that going on in this film. I do not <laughs> trust them. I was constantly sort of seeing how much time was left in the film. I wanted this film to be over so, so fast. I was like, just get me home safe. Just get me home safe. Please let me get home safe. Once I was home safe, then I was, then I could breathe. Then I could enjoy it. It's not a horror film, but whew, your heart is pumping. Yeah. <laughs> this reminds me of when we were driving in Minneapolis on one of our bike tours and we're trying to get to a baseball game, Duncan, and I was driving the van. You're already, you're already worked up. I'm worked up. There was clearly a U-turn gravel path on the left side. Duncan just yelled at me, trying to keep me from going left when it was clearly allowed. It would have been, it would have been fine. But it I did. was three lanes of highway in both directions in downtown Minneapolis. No, you cannot do a U-turn on the... So maybe it's just my personal fears of cars, but the beginning of this film in the sound design, there's the slow ticks of a roller coaster heading up. Ryan, total cliche, but did this feel like a roller coaster ride for you? It felt ambitious it felt big it went up and down yeah i could feel i could see that i can see a roller coaster out of that uh, a roller coaster except you're not having many of those fun moments <laughs> it's just all oh god we're gonna drop when's it gonna drop we're gonna drop soon right this is dropping and that breakdown comes a few times but it's uh, there's no relaxing part to catch your breath yeah it's it's definitely intense it it, it captures you you basically the the easiest part is the first 15 minutes when you kind of see the balance being this movie reminds me of like a high wire act where you see someone balancing over something they shouldn't be balancing over and somehow they're pulling it off and then the wind starts blowing and they start to wobble a little bit and then things start to shake and it's crazy and you think they might save it and then just it just goes from there and it's it's definitely intense Duncan, I am interested because you've you've reacted so strongly to this. Do you feel like th I've heard of critiques and I would say even in my own first viewing, I felt like it might have delved into a little melodrama. No. So here. OK. And now, ooh, Ryan, you got me excited again. Yeah, I want to know. I want to know because I think I liked it better the second time I watched it for this. The first so time the melodrama kind of hit me and maybe it's because I, I didn't know where the story was going the second time I did. So I was able to focus on other things. So yeah, like Cretia, a lot of this film does take place in the home uh, with the family. The family is Kelvin Harrison Jr. Who was in, it comes at night plays Tyler, the son Sterling K Brown is Ronald, the overbearing father, Taylor Russell as Emily, the daughter and Renee Elise Goldsberry as the stepmother. Trey does not shoot a single scene in a straightforward manner. I believe like a lot of critics thought this film was going to win a lot of acting awards because the performances are so great, but it's not melt for melodrama in any way. Like what would be the climactic scene between the two parents talking about the family falling apart the clip that would be played, you know, at the Oscars as Sterling K gets his nomination. The camera doesn't cater to the performances. It doesn't give you what you think you should have. The camera's slowly pushing in over a few minutes and then slowly panning back and forth. It's not, you know, the close up of the tear dropping down the face. It's he's shooting it just how the scene feels, not what would cater to maximum 
audience appreciation. When Sterling's dro- Sterling is dropping tears, you have to respect that, Trey. Keep that camera on those big old tears. No, he's staying true to the film as a whole and not and not just to the tear. Uh, yeah, I, I would agree with that. After I got over the story the first time, I was able to more appreciate what you're referring to, which is something we've talked about a lot, is his craftsmanship. I think one thing I noticed the second time, I didn't notice the first time. So the way he handles the two different kids, Tyler, Tyler is very achievement-oriented. He's always moving. He's always performing. He's always trying to get better, pushing himself, being pushed by his dad. So the camera is constantly moving. I, I think I noted in second time watching it, I don't think the camera stops for like the first 10 minutes. It's either going in a circle, following Tyler, and then going in a circle the other direction, or just following him. I would say maybe the first time it stops moving is when he does something that his dad wants him to do that is not of his own volition in terms of his routine and then the camera stops on him maybe for the first time so and then with emily who's quieter she's more reserved she's more trying to process her emotions the camera is much more still gentler it's slower in everything it does much less kinetic which i thought was pretty fascinating i didn't notice that the first time he knows how to work that camera and every (laughs) Sound design, you know, is cutting out at scene moments. We do have, just like in Cretia, there is a aspect ratio change. It's just so cinematic. I think, you know, one criticism, maybe it's also a music video of sorts. I think there's over 40 different songs on the soundtrack. You have Kanye West, Kendrick Lamar, Tame Impala, Tyler, the Creator, Radiohead, Animal Collective, Frank Ocean. And in addition to all that, you got a Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross score making you so uncomfortable. I was really happy to see Kelvin Harrison Jr. uh, re-team with Schultz in this film. Kelvin Harrison Jr. has done some really good work. I don't know if you've seen Loose, Duncan. Have you seen Loose? No. Pretty interesting. Kelvin Harrison Jr. plays a similar role as he does in this. He's a top of his class, overachieving high school student. And it is about him and a teacher who kind of go head to head And it's kind of a mind bender, psychological thriller, more of a drama though, but it has those elements. It keeps you on edge. Tim Roth and Naomi Watts play his adoptive parents. So it's just really good to see him. I love to see him in this. I like how Schultz's focus is always human nature as well. I think his first two features were more around horror elements. And in this one, he goes more with a drama. You can see the Malick inspiration and in. I'd say the color palette. I mean, good night. The color palette in this film is insane. It's like a rave. Oh, speaking of Florida raves, Harmony Korean was on set for this. They only used his voice, but he was one of the teachers in the background. Don't bring him up. <laughs> so yeah. Duncan, what did you think about the color palette? What do you think about the color palette, Duncan? No, that's why I brought up at the very top, Nicholas Wending Reffin. Like you have the pop ah. music going on. Uh, there's that raw sexual energy there's yeah colors just sort of fading in and out but yeah there's a little harmony Korean spring breakers in there right i'm sorry actually spring breakers is one of the few Korean films i like yeah so it's I would, in there i love i love how his style is more pronounced than when it comes at night i feel like he went a little more commercial straightforward with his camera here his camera is kinetic again his his colors are just all over the place 
it's much more, it reminds me much more of Cresha and how it's shot. There's one scene at the beginning where Kelvin Harrison Jr. is walking up the stairs of his house and his dad speaks and the camera pans to his dad who's at the bottom of the stairs across the room. Totally reminded me of Cresha. It, it's not a shot that you would see in It Comes at Night or in many films. And I think when Schultz's camera is allowed to be free, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, so we'll give that credit to the DP, Drew, Drew Daniels, who was also on Cresha. Yeah, I think this is Cresha with, how do we go from 30000 to like $3 million in the budget? That 100 times the budget, and it, it works. Yeah. You got to pay for all those Sterling K. Brown tears. They don't come, <laughs> they don't come cheap. Were there any other actors you noticed, Ryan? Uh, Are you talking about Doyle? Yeah. Knowing how much I loved Bill Wise as Doyle and Cresha, the first time I watched Waves, I just totally spaced on me. I I don't know if I wasn't paying attention that Doyle is the high school wrestling coach. So when I saw her Doyle just yelling at him to, you know, look at what inspires you and say you're not going to let them down and it's not going to let you down, it just felt right. I was just ready for some dogs to show up and for him to start (laughs) yelling at them, you know, they need to be killed or something. Wrestlers are his new dogs. Are you calling him an asshole licking menace? No, that's something I could easily see him yelling at his wrestlers. <laughs> that's so true. <laughs> and did you notice Cresha was also a teacher? I did not notice that. And we also haven't talked about actor Lucas Hedges plays Emily's boyfriend in there, who is also loosely based on Trey himself or one key scene. So we're... Huh. Some people are wondering, why is Trey, a white boy from Texas, creating this film about a black family in Florida? We'll go once again straight to Trey. It's a black family because of Kelvin. We essentially came down on the feelings that if it was a black family going through universal things, it needs to be specifically nuanced, real, and authentic to a black family. But ultimately, what they're going through is a universal tragedy that any family would go through. So yeah, basically Trey wanted to work with Kelvin and they worked on the script. They made it work. You can't break a beautiful bromance. Let the bromance, let it thrive. Let it live. Let it breathe. Yeah, I think that's ambitious. And I think that he does a really good job with that there. I feel like the emotion is really good. Uh, There's a lot of control through pressure. There's a lot of fallout from injuries from that control through pressure. And I would say... Ultimately, it just asks us the question, does love cover all offenses or is our only solace really to recreate each other as monsters after pain and tragedy has struck? I think he pulled it off. Unfortunately, not enough people saw this. So I recommend it. I'm for I'm 4.5 out of five stars. I really, really liked it. You've already <sighs> dropped half a star since the beginning. I did? See, that's, you know. Duncan, did you notice that one aspect ratio change? Yeah. Okay. I just wanted to bring that up because that also, I noticed it the first time, but this time it hit me like a ton of bricks. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) like the first time I was like, oh, that was cool. And then the second time I was like, oh, damn. (laughs) Yeah. So I was like that, that aspect ratio change also happens in Cresha. So if you liked Cresha or like this film, watch the mother. You got any other films in the same ballpark, Ryan? Yeah, the only thing I can come up with is it's really just a, a a long, ambitious, original film that's two parts, and it's about how actions echo in families' lives. And the only peer that I can think of is The Place Beyond the Pines. Yeah, and going for a real stretch just to get a third one in there, 
Trey watched um, a lot of Children of Men for It Comes at Night. And if you like camera spinning in the car as all hell breaks loose, there's a, there's a lot of that in this film. Yeah, they, he definitely mirrors several shots. And there's a lot of spinning in cars <laughs> and people <laughs> yelling or singing. That's what you call a go-to. All right, so that's what we got for Waves. Duncan, I feel like you uh, you really love Trey's micro-budget work with Cresha. You mentioned some of your favorites. Hit us up with some of those. Here we go. For this list, my definition of micro-budget is under 100000 There's so many I want to name drop. At number 10, I haven't seen it yet, but Tangerine. Is that by Sean Ooh, Baker? I have seen that. It's very good. All right. Shot on <laughs> so, an iPhone. Yeah. Micro budget right there. So Ryan will be my guest number 10 <laughs> selector. He picks Tangerine as number 10. So number nine from 2004, we have Shane Carruth, $7,000. She shot Primer, a 16 millimeter film, Sundance Darling. That'll be a reoccurring theme here. El Mariachi. 1992 by Robert Wright Riaz, made for $7,000, but then once it was picked up, $200,000, a little bit of a cheat, also shot on 16 millimeter. Then we got Pi, P-I, not P-I-E, talking and spelling, not one of my strengths. That's why I like the visuals of films. So we have Pi in 1998 by Darren Aronofsky, coming in at 61,000, shot on 16 millimeter, black and white Sundance. What do we have? We got Clerks at number six from 1994. Kevin Smith, $27,000. Once again, another 16 millimeter black and white Sundance darling. What I'm getting is if it's micro budget, just go black and white. (laughs) Color correction is very hard. Black and white is a wonderful crutch. (laughs) And what do we have here at number five? A black and white film in search of a midnight kiss uh, directed by Alex Holdridge, 24,000. Scoop McNary brought the film to NYU while I was still a little... Film school boy there and showed it to us. Inspired me. Duncan. I want to see a little baby Duncan watching in search of a midnight kiss. Oh, so adorable. Duncan's still in search of his midnight kiss. Don't 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 let him kid you. So many hopes and dreams back then. Somebody come kiss Duncan. (laughs) This, yeah, we said this. We're doing this podcast for two reasons. Number one, we need screeners. Number two, we need friends to talk to. (laughs) And Duncan needs someone to make out with. I can't do it anymore. I'm married. (laughs) Uh, I don't know what to say there. Number four, (laughs) following 1998, Christopher Nolan, $6,000 shot on weekends over a year. Ryan, is this another 16 millimeter black and white film? (laughs) You bet it is. I'm telling you that that's what you did wrong. Duncan. How many of those have you shot? None. (sighs) That's why that's why independent spirit awards isn't come knocking at your door, kissing you at midnight. Number three, Hump Day by Lynn Shelton. She recently passed away. Sorry to see her go. She'd had many interesting films. This one, $20,000. For some reason, she did it in color. Still a Sundance winner. Rookie mistake. (laughs) And Cresha, we were just talking about it. Trey did this for $30,000. And my number one, from the year 2000, George Washington by David Gordon Green. He did this for $42,000. It was in color. It was gorgeous. Coming up there, our, our good buddy Dick Little from the assassination of Jesse James. He plays another sweet-talking Southerner just getting into a little bit of trouble. Is he hitting on 
underage wives of other older men? Um, he is hanging out with underage boys, but not flirting with them. It's not that film. Easy, Paul. Easy. That's interesting. I actually have not heard of George Washington. I have seen several of David Gordon Green. So you just threw that on my radar, Dunks. Thanks. Yeah. We're here to make make recommends. So as you see, a lot of, you know, some of the biggest names in cinema right now, they started out cheap. You gotta have a little bit of money and a whole bunch of passion. Duncan, you mentioned Lucas Hedges earlier. I will say there's one film of Lucas Hedges. He's he's been getting around. You've probably seen him in a number of things. Wes Anderson's Moonrise Kingdom. He shows up as a bloodthirsty boy, aka Duncan. If you ask him about <laughs> it, comes at night during a pandemic. And uh, there's many films he shows up as, but the one I really want to recommend, if you haven't seen it, is Honey Boy. Uh, Shia LaBeouf wrote uh, it and then acts in it. And it's about his experience as a child actor and his dad's uh, abuse and very complicated relationship with his dad that he had during that time. Shia LaBeouf plays his dad. Uh, Lucas Hedges plays him later when he's older kind of processing those things it's one of the most personal films i've ever seen lucas hedges does phenomenal work and it is probably one of the better films i've seen in terms of just personal personal stories personal working through what you've experienced it's incredibly raw incredibly transparent and i applaud shia labeouf for making it and i think that if you want to see lucas hedges in something start there Yeah, so you're saying overbearing father on a son who's just crumbling under the pressure. That sounds like waves. Yeah, you know, Lucas Hedges, he's already getting typecast, you know, (laughs) Trey and and Shia LaBeouf. They're just like, you you need a son that's crumbling under pressure? Go Lucas Hedges. So Ryan, you've been watching anything else recently? Yeah, you got me on searching for Sugarman after you uh, after you uh, dropped it last pod. I me and Katie cranked up old Sugar. Searching for Sugar Man. And uh, to those who don't know, I'm an easy crier. My wife is not. And I, I definitely cried in that one several times. That one hit me, hit me real good, got me where it counts. And I don't know. I don't know if Katie cried or not. I'm scared to ask. She probably didn't. So we now have a third goal for this film. Number one, we got to get those screeners. Number two, find a smooch buddy for me. Number three, find a film that can make Katie cry. Yes, absolutely. In fact, that should just be a whole segment. Did this film make Katie cry? Yes or no? The answer is going to be no. (laughs) Ryan, why don't you ask me what I'm watching? What are you watching while you're hanging out with your cat in San Francisco? I've been going back to Brooklyn with Spike Lee. I watched Crooklyn and Mo Better Blues. You seen any of those, Rag Guy? So no, Duncan, I haven't seen either of those. Although Chirac is on my list of one of his more underappreciated films that I've heard recommended from other podcasts and people that I've been on my Amazon list for much too long. A little embarrassing. Yeah, Crooklyn is semi-autobiographical. I said it on the first try. Look at you. He's growing already. He's (laughs) dropping half stars and speaking eight-syllable words. Yeah, so this is Spike Lee growing up in Brooklyn in the 70s. This has more music cues than as waves almost. I think there's 35 different song tracks this is almost a musical there is non-stop music going on yeah so what's one boy's childhood is my trauma like there's things that are going on in here that would scar me for life but it just seems like another day smooth 70s playing in the background life goes on 
You're saying it's uh, just another day in the 70s. <laughs> just another day in Brooklyn in the 70s. Hey, so what if a, a man huffing glue attacks a 10-year-old girl and gets her high and later she hits him with a stick ball bat? It's just growing up. Kids will be kids. It's just the summer. School's out. I also saw Airplane. Spike Lee ripped off a shot from Airplane and did it well. So that was that was some shocking revelations over there. Duncan, next week we're going to get into around your parts, San Francisco. We're going to watch three films in and around San Francisco, kind of like you. Last Black Man in San Francisco is the freshman effort from Joe Talbot. It is one of my favorite movies of last year. I think it ranked around number seven out of 10. And then also catching up with some classics. Let's do it. Let's, let's, uh, let's see the past and the future. All, all wrapped in one city. How do we want to end this episode, Ryan? Just the way you wanted to end my life in that vehicle? Yeah, uh, either that or Kenny Loggins playing with the boys, blaring on the stereo. <laughs> Chase some sunsets, Duncan. Chase some sunsets. I'll give you fucking magic in there. Magic? It's hardly the hottest ticket in town, darling. What? Where's the next one? Well, I like the I like the film discussion. I feel like that's going well. <laughs> the film discussion of the film discussion podcast going well. Not enough of the boys being dum dums. <laughs>